Welcome back to Revelatorium, the podcast that comes around once a month, unlike New Year's resolutions, which are only once a year. I think that's far too infrequent. Like, I'm more of a fan of the micro resolution here on the Revelatorium podcast. We do monthly resolutions. I think you could even break that down even further. Like, I think you could do a daily resolution, an hourly resolution. That might get a little bit overwhelming, but I will say, like, I enjoy making resolutions or intentions, whatever you want to say. Resolutions kind of more fun because it's, it's, I feel like it's tied to New Year's. And then intentions are kind of like the year round word for it. You know, it's like you use resolutions in January and then every other month of the year, if you set a goal, it's like an intention, not a resolution. Anyway, I like to do little resolutions for trips, experiences, events, like shows. Because if I'm going, like, for example, right now I'm home in the Bay Area um, for the holidays and I set intentions for the trip of what I wanted to, like, get out of it, what things I was really looking to, like, exhibit in myself, you know? And I think that's really important because then you don't absorb just, like, the expectations of everyone around you. You're able to actually articulate, okay, here's what I want out of this experience, even though maybe people say you should get X, Y, Z out of going home for the holidays. Well, I want, what if I want O, X, and L out of it? Huh? What about that? What about that? Um, So, yeah, as per the course of this podcast for the past year, now we're in season two, year two, the re-up, we're going to continue on our trend of doing monthly resolutions because I think it's too hard to look at a whole year in advance. Like, I love commitment, but like, that's too long of a forecast. You have no idea. I think quarterly resolutions would work better anyway. And I also think like part of the beef I have with resolutions is that it's a bunch of things that might come out of thin air that you've never done before that you want to do this year. And it's like, who's to say that any of those things, once you try them, will actually be helpful or beneficial or like important to you? You know, like what if one of your New Year's resolutions is to like run a mile every day and then you do it and you realize that hurts my knees and I don't like it and I'd rather bike? Well, now, well, now because you've set the freaking resolution, there's this weird attachment to it and you feel like you can't let it go or give it up without failing. Or maybe that's just me because I'm an Enneagram three. But I think I find it more helpful to do these sort of taking and leaving lists, which if you've been a listener for season one, you're familiar with. Because the 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 glory of the taking and leaving list and the reason that I do that instead of like ins and outs or resolutions is that It's more manageable in my mind because you're only, in my philosophy, you're only allowed to put things down on the taking list that you've already been doing. So like we're going to do taking and leaving from December into January. And it's like I'm only able to set goals and intentions for January that I've already started in December. That way I know it's already feasible. I already like it. It already it already resonates with me. And then it's just a matter of maintaining consistency. Like consistency. Like I think that's actually the like the cardinal thing you have to focus on is the actual consistency of the behavior. It's hard enough just to get something that you've already been doing and continue it, much less add something completely new to the mix. So that's why I like taking and leaving because it's like, let's just focus on what already exists and like manifest more of that rather than introduce like a lot of variables. Similar to the philosophy of like, I'm only going to decide if I want to be somewhere once I show up. Like if you're kind of dreading going to, you know, your friend's, you know, 
um, I don't know, birthday party or you're dreading showing up at this picnic, whatever it may be, just show up there. And if you hate it, you can leave. However, one of my friends did bring up if you go with somebody intentionally or like if you live with somebody that you go with and then they don't want to leave, but you do, that complicates it. But like I'm a free agent in my life. I have complete free will. Um, I don't have to like govern my life by somebody else's wants and wishes, fortunately. So if I show up somewhere, like if I go to I've been doing stand up comedy, if I go to an open mic and I get there and I hate it, I leave. You know, if you go to the gym, if you want, if you are not feeling like going to the gym, show up there. And if you're still not feeling like it, you can leave. You know, let's practice some non-attachment, but let's not like pre-evaluate how we're going to feel until we get there. And that's that's the similar sentiment of like taking and leaving versus brand new resolutions. It's like, let's not predict what resolutions are going to work. Let's just take what's already existing once we're already there and be like, do I want to continue it and take it or do I want to leave it? So that's that on that. Since resolutions are on everyone's minds, I am going to start this episode with the taking and leaving rather than the revelations. And the first thing that I will be taking is putting myself out there. To me, there's something sort of despicable about that phrase, putting yourself out there, because that's like such trite advice of like, if you're looking to like meet new people or find what you're passionate about, you need to put yourself out there. And I've been told that so many times, similar to like, be yourself. I didn't know what be yourself meant until I turned 25. And I was like, wait, I have low-key been masking my personality around strangers to make myself more palatable. But actually, by trying to make myself more palatable, I made myself less palatable. What you really want to be is extremely palatable to like a to those with taste, you know, your your audience, your group of strangers. You don't want to be universally palatable um, because very, very few people are. And it's just kind of it's just kind of a futile goal. Okay, so like similar to being yourself, I didn't really understand that advice until I was 25. It took me until the edge of 27. I'm about to turn 28 next month and I'm already prepping by saying I'm 28. This is similar to like taking and leaving. Start it before it happens. I might be turning 28 on February 28th, golden birthday. That'll be that'll be much discussed in episode 14. Oh, no, 15, 15. No, 14. That'll be much discussed in episode 14. But I'm already rehearsing 28. So that tra- that transition's a little bit softer. And I can just continue something I've already started rather than, you know, blank slate started anyway. Anyway, it took me to the edge of 27, 28 to realize what put yourself out there means. Because I did so much of it, I kind of wore that phrase out. Like December for me was like blasting myself into every possible situation I could. What were those situations? Well, I was doing like two to three to four open mic, comedy open mics every single week, which is extremely vulnerable and like out there. Like you were literally out on the stage in front of people. Like I cannot think of a more literal example of putting yourself out there. So there was that. I was also doing a lot of public karaoke. And by that, I mean karaoke bars. That's another thing I'm taking into this month into January is singing in public. I'm telling jokes in public. I'm singing in public. I am in fucking public right now, you guys. And I have been for the past month and I think I need to continue it. Although it has been very raw and sort of like um, tender. Like I got to a point where I did so much of putting myself out there that I was like, "Ooh, I am feeling like overdosed on it. 
but I actually just think I need to get my tolerance up is the thing. And this is sort of a blended revelation and taking. I wasn't quite sure which spot to put it, but like I need to build up more antibodies and sort of like an immune system to putting yourself out there. Like your nervous system is going to be a little bit wrecked when you start to do this. And the only way out, I believe, is through and just regulating yourself. And like the more that you do it, the more sort of like like defense and resistance and like antibodies you'll build where you have like a little bit of that running through you already so when you do it your body doesn't react as like strongly to it i've been building up my comedy antibodies i think i already have my karaoke antibodies because i love doing bar karaoke and i never did i did it one time in la and i remember it taking like two and a half hours for my song request to get up there. And I don't actually think we stayed long enough for me to do my song. And everyone's taste was just very much like Don't Stop Believing core, like wedding songs. And I'm like, I don't want to hear that. You know, those were not people with with my taste per se. But I found an excellent, amazing, thriving, special watering hole in Seattle, a beloved dive bar that does karaoke. And they would do it every time we had comedy class afterwards we'd go across the street and we'd go do karaoke at this dive bar and I was kind of wary at first because I'm very much a karaoke private room head okay I got like really really into that when I lived in China my summer after freshman year Um, and then since then like me and my friends like me and my two friends just the three of us we have rented out like at this point, four or five different karaoke rooms together, and we just cosplay Heim and just do, like, three-part harmonies and just geek the hell out. And if you want to see any of that footage, it is on my vlog channel, aka my Patreon, for $5. You can get in and get out and see all that footage. You can see me doing stand-up comedy and flopping and succeeding, and you can see me doing um, some excellent performances in both private karaoke rooms and public karaoke bars to... Gucci Gucci by Sean, Last Christmas by Wham, and Sweet Escape by Gwen Stefani. I desperately wish I captured my first performance in this bar, which was Love Bug by Jonas Brothers. And I thought nobody in there would know the lyrics, would get it, because it was a bunch of like alt Gen Zers. Like they looked like they were like 21. And I was like, these kids are way, like they might have eclipsed the Jonas Brothers. You know, they might not have like consumed it and I do think love bug is like a deeper cut than some of their other top charts so I performed it and lo and behold the neckbeards in the bar were singing the gen z alt kids were singing the bartender was singing everybody around was singing and I was like wow I had no idea that love bug by the Jonas Brothers could be the connective tissue that unites us all in this dive bar and just the people in this dive bar like all of their songs were so good there would be so many like surprises and sort of Hail Marys and like unexpected performances. It's just excellent. I don't need to rant about it anymore. It's just excellent. And I'll be taking it into the new year. I think it might just be that karaoke bar is special, Uh, but it's divine. And I've been putting myself out there with that um, singing publicly because I love singing and dancing in my bathroom mirror. Like that is my little art therapy is like doing that and having my own little performance that is girlhood to me. That is divine feminine to me is little bathroom performances in front of your mirror. And I'm like, why haven't, why don't I debut those? If I enjoy doing it so much, don't you think people would enjoy watching me do it? Because I'm clearly having so much fun. I love watching people have fun. 
You know, I'm a voyeur in that way. I will I will get enjoyment out of watching people have fun. Like you when you when you can tell that someone is really doing something that they are just so enthralled in, even if they're maybe not like classically good at it, it's still entertaining. So that's another way I've been putting myself out there. Um, I do think I have karaoke antibodies at this point. I have been hosting in my apartment and having little gatherings. And that's kind of nerve wracking because it's like, who's going to RSVP? Who's going to actually come by? Are they all going to get along? Are they going to enjoy it? Like, do I have the right, you know, environment for this gathering? And that's a little nerve wracking, too. I'm also inviting people to um, a golden birthday celebration I'm having in February. And that's nerve wracking, too, in terms of like rejection and who might not be on board and receiving all of that. So I need antibodies for that. I need... I, I really built up my Vlogmas antibodies. I just finished my um, second year in a row of doing Vlogmas. I did it in college and then I've revived it now that I don't have a corporate job. That's bogging me down. Did that on my vlog channel, aka my Patreon. And that is like truly, again, like maximalist putting yourself out there. Like it's enough to put out one YouTube video a month. That's still like really exposing yourself and really shining a light on your identity. Doing one video every single day, even though it was gatekept to my Patreon and in a circle of trust, you know, of good faith trust, it still felt like I talked about some very vulnerable things on there, like my sexuality and about, you know, addiction, about my relationships with my parents and my friends. And like, there's a lot of stuff on there that is really true to like what I was going through in December. I didn't journal. I journal every single day. I didn't journal a single day in December because my vlogmas videos became my way of like capturing my mood and my thoughts. And so in a way, it's like, yeah, if you're going to publish your journal entries, that's going to feel a lot like putting yourself out there. So um, I just want to say that now that I understand what putting yourself out there is, it's extremely difficult, but I've re- I've reaped so many rewards of new people that I've met and just sort of like, you know, building those antibodies. I think I'm going to see the payoff in, in like the dividends in in full in like a few months if I just continue on this. I m- multiple times during December was like, what if I just give up on comedy? What if I just what like are these Vlogmas videos really hitting? Like, do I want to continue these? Like there was a lot of doubt and sort of like moments of like, should I just, you know, plop on out of here? But nevertheless, she persisted relentlessly. And I do think there's like progress to be made. So Putting yourself out there, cusp of 28 behavior in my in my idea. Okay, what else are we taking? Getting to know your parents' friends. Okay, I have been fascinated by asking people if they know their parents' friends because in this month of being, or no, in these couple of weeks of being home, I've gone to like, I think three, maybe four gatherings with my parents' friends and my sister didn't get home until later this year. So usually I would go with my sister and I'd have an ally. You know, I'd have a similar age bracket ally at these functions where if I didn't want to mingle with everybody else, I could just hang out with her and shoot the shit with her. And we have a lot of inside jokes. It would be fun. What not? This year I didn't have that. And for the first time, like maybe this is also cusp of 28 behavior, but like Or maybe it's just because I have been putting myself out there more and I've gained sort of confidence there. But it's like for the first time ever, I saw myself as like a peer in the conversation. I wasn't like the kid that my parents brought along. I was like, wait, 
I can have my own conversations with these people. I don't have to just like trail my parents around these gatherings and around these parties and just like do do what they do. I can generate my own conversations. And here's what I'll say. Like, I have excellent conversational prompts. Okay, one of my conversational prompts to my friends last month was like, do you know any 27 year old divorcees? And actually, I should have asked that to you guys on this month's survey. Listeners like you write in and you can too next month if you check my Instagram or community tab on YouTube. I should have asked that. Um, but maybe if you want to comment on YouTube or respond on the Spotify Q&A, if you know any 27-year-old divorcees and what they're like, I've gotten so many fascinating answers out of that because I do think 27-year-old divorcees are just very um, interesting people. They have interesting things to say. They've made wild, not wild, but wide jumps in their decision-making process in their 20s. Like they went full tilt one way and now they're going full tilt another. And I just find that very inspiring, honestly, is like, you know, being a free thinker and being like, you're being a free thinker twice. At least in my culture, it's like people do not get married young. They get married, if ever, in like their mid-30s. So if you get married young, that's controversial. And then if you get divorced young, it's also controversial. It's like, damn, you're really putting yourself out there in terms of like, you know, free thinking behavior. Um, anyway, I feel like I have a lot of good conversation starters and I can get the conversation bumping. So I'm like, let me not just rely on like whatever my parents want to talk to their friends about, you know, whatever movies they're watching. I'm like, I have my own questions and I want to get to know and I want to investigate my parents, friends, lore. I'm like, how did you guys meet? How did you guys develop your friendship? At what point did you take it out of the women's group you met at or the mother's group or the church community or school or whatnot? At what point did you depart from that? You started hanging out, you know, like I, I want to know their own friendship arc. And then I want to know for them, like, how did you end up in the Bay Area? Like, how did you make these different decisions? And I have uncovered some very, very loud information out of this, one of which being a curse that was put on my parents' friends. And, you know, I might as well just talk about this now. I was going to save it for the revelations, but sometimes sometimes my thought streams just flow so beautifully down the mountain. Um, yes, two of my parents' friends had a curse put on them in Jersey City, Jersey by one of their tenants because they were landlords. And you know what? <laughs> All landlords should be cursed. Maybe they'd give up their landlord. They did not give up their landlordship after they were cursed. But basically, their tenant put a curse on them because they were living in the building. It was like a duplex or like a triplex or whatever the hell. They were living in the building and the husband would always just take the, the garbage cans out on trash day every week. And then they moved out of Jersey City, Jersey and moved out of their duplex, but kept it and kept the tenants and moved to Philly. So they were no longer the ones just like bringing out the garbage cans. And the tenant was like, what the heck is going on? Why are my garbage cans like overflowing? Like I have so many ants in my house. Like, why isn't this being done? You guys need to do this. And they were like, oh, well, like we moved. We're not going to do it anymore. And she said, I curse you. And they didn't take it seriously because they're both very STEM oriented people and very cerebral and whichever half of the brain is the logical side, they're that one. But in the 40 years since, they have encountered some of the worst atrocities. Like shortly thereafter, um, she got pregnant and had an extremely bad case of um, gestational diabetes where she would have to every single day instead of eating lunch at work, she'd have to go to the doctor and get a shot. And during her pregnancy, her husband 
was driving on or was either maybe walking or driving on a bridge when it collapsed and he fell off of it into the water and broke his back, you know, and he had to be in a full body cast while she was pregnant. He couldn't even get in a car. It would take him 30 minutes to figure out how to situate himself in a car. So imagine having gestational diabetes. You're sick all the time. Your husband's in a full body cast. Like there is that. And then now, 40 years later, when they walked into our house, the first thing they said before I learned about the curse was that they they have a row house, more landlord behavior. They have a row house in Philly, which is like when you have, if you know the concept of a row house, it's like, bunch of tall like three-story buildings that are all wedged together so there's no space in between them so they're like holding each other up and their neighbor demolished it which made the two row houses theirs and their other neighbors collapse inward and they've been in a lawsuit for a year and a half and you would think insurance would cover it but because the soil shifted that's one of two things in the insurance clause earthquakes and soil shifting that null the insurance and and so it's like these things are befalling them at extreme paces. And actually, when they came over to my house, so much bad stuff was happening. Like my my mom would like drop a glass, like she spilled soup on herself. She cut her finger while she was cooking. And it's like, okay, I understand that those things can all be attributed not to the curse, just to like general bad luck. But it was just sort of funny You know, a little cosmic that I was like, you're in my house and now all these bad things are happening that didn't happen before you got here. So um, safe to say, like, yeah, talk to your parents, friends. You might discover some fascinating information. And it was like so synchronous because I just watched the first two episodes of The Curse, which is this new show on Showtime with Nathan Fielder and Emma Emma Stone and Benny Safdie. And I had not really considered the concept of a curse before this show, where one of the characters is cursed by a little girl, and then it's kind of like tracking the the sort of like how it plays out um, and him lying about it. So I was exposed to that. Then I heard my family friends talk about their real life curse. And then I watched Iron Claw. Cannot recommend it. I thought it had nothing to say. And actually, I thought it glorified suicide in a really irresponsible way. And I don't know why no one's talking about it more. Everyone wants to sound off and yap about May, December. Nobody's talking about, like, the illness of um, Ironclaw. Like, it is a A24 movie with, like, Zac Efron about, like, WWE wrestling. But TLDR, the dad in that family, this is not a spoiler, believes that they were cursed. But none of the things that happen that he's claiming are the curse. Like, he's claiming that the U.S. pulling out of the Olympics um, during the Cold War when it was in Ma- Moscow was the curse befalling their family. And I'm like, you think a massive geopolitical like boycott is a curse directed at your family specifically? Like, what kind of male ego is that? Like, to me, I'm like, if a man believes he's cursed, like in this in this Iron Claw universe, him believing he, he was cursed was basically just like, I'm entitled to succeeding at everything and anything that me and my family do not do extremely well, number one spot at, we are cursed. So I had three instances of like curse exploration in one week. And I know it's that principle of like, oh, well, you know, you know, if you break up with somebody and they drove like a red Jeep, then you're going to see red Jeeps everywhere. I understand that. And I don't care. It's fun. Let me live a little and see synchronicity around me. Okay. Okay. So get to know your parents, friends. I really enjoy just like talking to them as peers and not having that role, that separation, that hierarchy of like you are parent friend and I am 
um, friend daughter. Like, it's just like we are two people at this party. We can learn more about each other. And I really want to continue that practice, even though in January I won't be around a lot of my parents' friends. I asked a bunch of you in the survey, and some of you were able to connect with parents' friends all over. I actually was talking with a, a friend from high school during this break, and he, like, visited one of his mom's friends in, like, Spain. And I'm like, holy hell, like, you know, there there are opportunities to get to know the people in your parents' lives. And I think it just enriches my perspective of them more because I love to get to know my friends' friends. That sort of, like, completes a bigger picture of who my friend is and, like, allows me to get to know them better by getting to know their friends. So I'm like, why would I not want to get to know my parents' friends, you know? It just doesn't make sense. I'm like, this is the first time in my life I've ever really tried that. Okay. Um, finally, taking from December into January, trusted relationships where you can share without unfair judgment. I have had some very, like, sort of tough conversations with friends. Like, I'm not saying, like, about us and our dynamic. I'm saying about like kind of thorny topics like identity politics or like like intergender friendships, like just things that I'm like, maybe they're a little taboo. But like when you have and because I'm home in the Bay Area where I grew up, I'm revisiting a lot of friendships that I've had for a decade. A lot of these people I've met sophomore, junior, senior year of high school. I'm a decade out. My 10 my year reunion is this year if they manage to plan that. And if I come back, you know, it'll happen whether I come back or not. But, um, you know, it is this year. And so it's like 10 years of friendship creates this like incredible trust where I know that they're not going to be like calling me problematic. They're going to hear me out. And I'm, <laughs> and even in saying this, I'm like, because you and I don't have trust, you might be judging me like, what the hell is she talking about? That's so problematic. Like, da 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 da. I think it's just important to be able to like really open up to people without fear of judgment and like the trust you have over a long span of time really cures you of like that sort of like paranoid brain of like oh are they are they sort of like policing my politics are they sort of like judging my values it's like no they've been my friend for so long like they're here they know who I am they know where I'm coming from and they know I'm not coming from a bad place and they also know that we have the trust where if I were saying something out of line where it's like hey that's not cool like they would correct it and I I had like a little moment with a friend um an intergender friendship of mine where I was sort of like hey I think you should kind of like reevaluate your perspective on that like I think you're not really seeing it from like you know, of like a feminist point of view, like a woman's point of view where it's like, I'm not going to go into it, but it's like, I am just really recognizing um, the longevity of trust. And it's like, I've met so many new people in this past year. And I feel so lucky to have met so many people by putting myself out there. And it's like, we're building that trust, but it comes slowly. It comes slowly. And so it's like, there is something to be said for maintaining and sustaining relationships. Um, I think a lot of people, they have a crop of friends and then they move on to something else. They have a new crop of friends. But it's like, I'm just really grateful that there are people that have stuck around that I that I have stuck around with to see each other grow. Um, and, you know, they just have a much more like expansive view of who I am. And I don't have to worry like that they're misinterpreting what I'm saying because they're going to hear me out with nuance and they're not going to just like project onto me immediately. What the hell am I going to leave in December? Well, I would like it to be weird men coming on to me. And this was not alone 
in a, in a December alone phenomenon. This this happened uh, a few too many times in 2023, and it makes me feel um, a few different ways. Um, I think like. I want to believe so fiercely that I can have like intergender friendships and relationships that aren't going to have this looming like tension of like, oh, like, will they, won't they? It's like, no, let's have some. Why can't I have rich platonic relationships with straight men? I have rich platonic relationships with gay men. So I do have intergender intergender friendships. Absolutely. Absolutely. With bi men, gay men. But for some reason, straight men are like the one category that like I just cannot reproduce those relationships very often. They come along very scarcely and very rarely do they last a long time for me is the thing is the thing. I only have like one friendship with a man that's spanned spanned longer than like five, ten years. And I just like I'm always sort of interrogating that because it just doesn't feel right to me, you know. It's like I value having friends of all different of all different perspectives. Why can't I just have any? And a lot of people would be like, why are you trying to make friends with straight men? Like you just don't don't need to categorically. But I'm like, I'd like to not essentialize an entire group of people into like one thing. Like I know that there are straight men that I I probably could have a, a wonderful relationship with. But every single time I tried to last year, there was this weird moment of them coming on to me and I was like you barely know me like they would meet me and know me for maybe two days maximum four hours and they'd be like pursuing me romantically and I was like I don't like I guess some people just know really quickly who they're attracted to but I'm like if you don't really know me if we don't have any sort of trust built up how do you really know that you're attracted to me I guess it's just physical attraction at that point and I'm like I'm not really interested in pursuing much like Personally, for me, I'm not really interested in pursuing. I can't believe I have to caveat and say personally for me when it's like literally my podcast. I'm the only one with a microphone in this in this Subaru. By the way, if you're an audio listener, I am performing Madeline RG behavior and filming in my parents car because the acoustics are better. And I do feel a little bit too um, exposed when other people can overhear me. I only want to think about the thousands of you that can overhear me online. I don't want to think about anyone in real life that can overhear me. That's the duality of the internet and real life, you know, um, complexities. So, yeah, um, I'm not personally interested in pursuing anything with anyone that just is attracted to me physically. Like, that doesn't do much for me. I'm like... I would rather you be interested in me as a person, not just for my body, okay? Um, And I think maybe a lot of you out there can resonate with that, where you just feel like maybe you're not being fully understood. Um, And it just, it hurts me that, like, these men aren't looking to understand me as a person. They're immediately seeing me as, like, a romantic prospect, Because I don't do that with men that I meet. I'm not immediately like romantic prospect. And I'm not only interested in getting to know men that I see as romantic prospect. Like all these people were people that I was like, I see you as a friend prospect. And then along the way, they basically revealed it to to be that they were interested in one thing. And when I said, oh, I'm not interested in that, guess what they did? They all disappeared. So that's how I know that they were never interested in friendship. Because once that's the only thing on the table, they they 
jellyfish the hell away. I did go to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, so I've been thinking a lot about jellyfish. Beautiful creatures when you can view them behind glass. Um, scary when they're in the water and you can't see them and they sting you. And that's kind of a great metaphor for these men because I'm like, behind glass, I'm like, conceptually, I feel like we should have a good relationship. But then when they're in the water, I can't see what angle they're coming from. And then they sting me and I'm like, damn it. I never saw you coming from that perspective. So I would like to leave weird men coming on to me. And I it, I am forlorn that I have now confirmed the phenomenon that I hear about so often online. Like I've heard so many women in movies, in vlogs, in podcasts talk about when you're nice to a man, they think you're flirting with them. However, when a man is nice to me, I it, t- it would take me a long shot for me to interpret that as flirting. I am usually like discrediting them flirting with me. And this is this is why this is this weird men coming on to me phenomenon <laughs> held so strongly is because like if men are nice to me, I'm just like, okay, cool. You know, because when women are nice to me, I'm not like they're flirting with me. It's just they're being nice to me. Okay. However, when I'm nice to men, they're like, oh, she's into me. And I'm like, why? Why is this happening? Why is this disconnect happening? So I'm like, I guess I have to stop giving men compliments. I give everyone compliments. It's not exclusive to people that I'm attracted to. I'm like, so I can't give you a compliment without you thinking that I'm obsessed with you? Guess you're going to lose. Like, congratulations, men. You just lost out on getting compliments because you keep manipulating them into something that they're not. I'm like, if I'm attracted to you, I will tell you, actually. I will tell you, actually. Like, I am a pursuer. I will just tell you. I will. Okay. There is taking and leaving which actually did sort of envelop a lot of the revelations I had. Um, It was a blended, blended month. I only have two other revelations to share. And one of them I need to tread lightly because I've tried to explain this concept a few times and I've like failed uh, at least one or two of them. But my revelation is that we need more traders. I'm not saying T-R-A-D-E-R-S. I'm saying T-R-A-I-T-O-R-S. And maybe that word has a negative connotation to you. I think it can have a profoundly positive one when you pair it with something like class. Class traders, gender traders, race traders, sexuality traders. I think we need more of those things. And what do I mean by this? Well, I learned about this actually in a video, I think, about race traders and about sort of like whiteness and how we need more people to um, default from their like position of power. And obviously, if you're a white person, you can't just like pretend you're not white. What I'm saying is like, you should not be allying yourself to whiteness. You should be allying yourself to what people that are not white are saying. Like similar to like class trader, like if you grew up super rich, you should be trying to like be comrades with the working class and like really lift up that movement and that cause. And if you are a man, you should be a gender traitor and you should be a feminist, you know? And I'm realizing how few men I've met reveal themselves to be feminists. Like it is kind of rare, but it's like it's really important that you defect away from like, you know, just the opinions and the beliefs of those the people in that group. And really listen to people outside of your perspective and like 
what I think what that means is having a lot of like inter relationships, like intergender relationships, interracial relationships, interclass relationships. You can actually and I'm not like here's me caveating away. I literally hate caveating on the Internet, but it's like I have to provide a lot of nuance um, because of the way the Internet culture has developed. But it's like I don't mean like like purposely developing relationships with people outside of your identity categories just so that you can be a better person. I'm just saying like that is important to to as you are developing relationships, consider. I'm being vague, but like something I jokingly talked about on my vlogmas was having internalized heterophobia. Like I think straight culture is like bad. <laughs> like I don't think it's good. And I think a lot of straight people, they're not sexuality traders they don't even realize what straight culture is like they don't see it like it's invisible to them because they have not allied themselves outside of that but because i have so many queer friends i'm like you know what i really do prefer queer art queer media queer culture like i am gonna be a traitor to my attraction towards men and be like you know what let me support the queer movement like you need to be a traitor and resist heteronormativity as a straight person you know like if you're a white person you need to resist white supremacy like that kind of thing i'm not even trying to be on my social justice soapbox but like i think a lot of relationships fail because we do not have enough traders we need more traders we need more traders and my final revelation or sort of topic of exploration in december was who we go to for advice. Um, and I I hazard to say, and I asked this question in the survey because I wanted to basically run a poll. Selfishly, I use this podcast basically as just like a research vehicle. I'm like, let me do a very biased poll with the people that listen to me and see if they can confirm my hypotheses or deny them or just open me up to like other perspectives. Because my hypothesis is basically like, you like if your parents did not go to their parents for advice you probably do not go to your parents like i think advice giving culture is passed down generationally because i don't go to my parents for soft advice i don't go to them for advice on like my um my passions or my hobbies or my friends or relationships or like sticky stuff like that i really only go to them for advice on like you know, insurance and, you know, fixing my bike and, you know, how long do I microwave this for? <laughs> that sort of thing, that more of like that more sort of like practical advice. And I I finally just had it in me to ask my mom, like, did you go to your parents for advice? And she said no, because her mom would have given her something very trite and non-personal, like impersonal. Um, and she said it's because they were of a different era. But I'm like, I do really value intergenerational relationships. I think that folks older than us have a lot of incredible advice to give. I think it would be probably stupid to say that they don't. But it's like, why is it harder for us to accept advice from our parents, perhaps? Is it because they're of a different era? Or like, why is that? Why is there sort of like maybe an intimacy gap? And is it just because your parents had an intimacy gap with the parents before them? So this is where I'm going to dive into the responses I got. This podcast is actually flowing together so effortlessly. It's really, it's really um, boding well for January. But I will say, I don't like, um, like ascribing 
the entire vibe of a year to like the way that it started out. But I do think it's kind of fun to explore. Like, what was the first song you listened to this year? What was the first experience you had this year? My January 1st started out a lot of fun from like midnight to 2 a.m., which honestly I consider to be December 31st. Like I am the kind of person when I'm journaling, if it's after midnight, like if it's if it's if it was 11:59 on Thursday and now it's 12:32 a.m., that should be Friday, but I still title the page Thursday. Cuz to me like before you go to sleep, it's the same day. You know? I don't know if that makes sense, but from 12 a.m. to 2 a.m. on what was technically January 1st, but I would count December 31st, having a lot of fun. We were watching passages at my friend's house. We were just like eating cookies and talking and having a lot of fun. Then 2 a.m. comes, we go to sleep, and then we had to wake up at 6 a.m. to take my friend to the airport. And I was groggy and bitchy and tired. And I was acting like such a brat because I just did not want to get up. And, um, we had done a fire the night before and I had a bunch of like wooden skewers. And as I was packing up my bag, they all fell out onto the ground and I started picking them up and p- picking them up and putting them in the bag. And I was like, I'm literally playing a game of pickup sticks at 6 a.m. in the morning when I've gotten four hours of sleep. Like, is this really how I'm going to start the year? I'm literally and my friend was like, well, we had fun earlier. And I'm like, I don't want that to be the theme of the year. We had fun earlier, but now we're playing a game of pickup sticks like I don't want it to be a mess and then a recovery, you know? Um, and then the first song that came on when we got in our car and my phone connected was this like automatic Apple music. Like the only thing I had in iTunes. And I was just like, no, I don't want this to be the first thing that I listened to. Um, so then I promptly turned on Murder Murder on the Dance Floor for all the saltburn heads out there. There was a silver lining in that because we were up so early, I did capture the first sunrise of 2024 or just of this January in general. And I'm like, that's kind of why it's nice to make your resolutions and your worldview more piecemeal, like more month by month um, for certain things. Because if I just think about, oh, that was my first sunrise of January or that was the way I started out my January, I don't have to ascribe it to the whole year. Where are you going? What's going on? I wanted to put this into... You want to say hello to my podcast? Hi, bud. Oh, hi. <laughs> Wait, I have to come in here. Oh, I can't bend that way. Okay. Love you. Love you. Bye. Cameo. This is also maybe a good point. I know I just teased that we're going to dive into the um, viewer responses, but, you know, this this episode's flowing so effortlessly. Um, My mom just, you know, had a little, had a little cameo. I asked in my last survey, um, sort of like feedback on the pod, things that I could change, and I kind of preempted like should I bring guests on because that's the natural sort of arc of a podcast like a lot of times if you listen to millennial incredible podcast from Megan Megan um, Tan or is it Tran fuck anyway that was from like many many years ago and by many I mean probably like five such a cool narrative like beautiful documentary sort of podcast first season was just her sort of like revelations and then the next season she brought in guests and I liked it a lot less (laughs) I feel like when podcasts start bringing on guests it really highlights like maybe how good of an interviewer that person is versus how good of an introspector they are and it can really dovetail my interest in a podcast so I've been nervous to bring on guests but also I think it would be really redeeming to talk about the revelations I've gained from my relationships because every single month when I look at these revelations I think of people that brought these forth 
It's never independent. It's never alone. I'm never the one coming up with them. I am nervous, though, to put people in my life on this podcast because I don't want people to judge them. I don't want people to judge them. I don't want people to judge me by my association with them. I'm just like so protective of the people in my life. And um, unless they're already on the Internet, they're just not used to like this amount of exposure and putting yourself out there. I don't want to put someone else out there unless they want to do that for themselves. I don't want them to feel pressure of like, oh, I have to go on Kat's podcast because like she really wants me to. So I'm hesitant and I need to massage it and workshop it. But like that may come, but it's not coming yet. Okay. All right. Well, we'll get into taking and leaving what you guys are taking and leaving later. But I want to talk about the intergenerational advice train and how you all feel about that. So when I asked 50 plus of you, do you go to your parents for advice? If so, what kind? Who else do you seek advice from? It was a very small minor- minority of people that said, yes, I love going to my mom and my or my dad or my parent figure for advice. They help me and I trust them and I go to them for everything. That was like maybe two of like the 50 responses, okay? A lot of them did confirm my viewpoint, such as Emma, who's 24 in Denver, who said, sometimes I go to my parents for advice. I really limit it to practical advice, such as something going wrong with my car slash apartment, advice about work situations, since my mom and I work similar jobs. Otherwise, I usually go to my friends for advice about love and relationships or for advice about other friends. Boom. That's exactly what I said. So I was like, damn, okay. At least one of you is on the similar train. And a lot of you said this because your values differ a lot from your parents. And I think that's a better explanation for why we don't go to our parents more for advice than, oh, they're just of a different era. Because it's possible to be from a different era and have aligned values. It's possible, but generally your generation does sort of influence your values. Um, But if your parents don't share your values, it is going to be tough to get their advice. And one of you said... Chloe in Aotearoa, who's 19, said, I go I go to them to get advice in the sense that if they agree with me, I know I'm likely making the wrong decision. It's always good to see how people with totally different perspectives would perceive your situations. And I thought that was like so comical in a way that it's just like, yeah, you go to them to make sure that you're doing the opposite of what they say. So who else do we go to advice for? Well, Robin, who's 30 in Vancouver, said they go to discord reddit online communities close friends and that's huge because of the internet you can find advice on like really niche things that maybe no one in your life has experienced you know like maybe you're experiencing something and just the people you know around you have not gone through that but like somebody online can and like that's why i'm still on the internet you know because like for example when i lost my best friend to suicide when i was in college I didn't know many people around me that had had that experience. I mean, I'd I'd known people that had lost family members um, and had gone through grief. But like I it it was a lot of painful, sort of complicated feelings around it. And I remember going to YouTube to look at videos of people who had been through that. And it was so, so, so comforting. And then I also did find um, a grief support group, not to get advice, but just sort of to get um, camaraderie with other people going through similar situations. And that really helped. So. There are things the internet can provide that like our real life connections cannot. And I do hold space for that. Although I would generally say you should not be going to the internet for all of your advice. And that's not what Robin said. But it's just something that I am using that as a launch off point to say. 
I loved this response from Nikki, who's 25 in San Francisco. She said, LOL, funny you should ask. I hung up the phone on my mom the other day because she kept giving unwarranted advice even after I asked her to move on from the topic. I think my parents are a bit too removed from the world I live in to ask for specific advice. I more so like to ask things like, did your life turn out like you thought it would? Or when were the happiest times in your life? When did you feel like you really screwed up, etc.? I think those stories are so much more useful in understanding the human condition than your mom bashing you for wanting to quit your soul-sucking corporate job. That's where I'm at, too. I know some topics are just going to get me in the weeds with my mom in a way that I'll never be able to pop up from, meerkat style. So when I'm talking to my parents' friends and getting to know them and I'm asking my own parents, it's like, I really do, like, that's why I like to ask my mom instead of for her advice directly. I did the meta thing and said, did you go to your mom for advice? And when she said no, it kind of validated that I don't need to go to my mom if she isn't, she's probably not expecting that because she didn't go to her mom for all types of advice that maybe wasn't something that she wanted out of that role. And I think I'm kind of trying to explore, do I want that? Is that a goal that I have to open up my relationship to my parents and start to ask them advice on more topics? And I think, you know, if they're just going to bash your decisions and your advice seeking process, probably not great. But I highly recommend asking your questions more, asking more sort of philosophical questions to your parents and to the people um, around them. I'm also obsessed with this response from Sarah, who's 28 in Massachusetts, who said, there's a woman in the town next to my hometown whose advice I trust completely. She's 12 years older than me, and we met at a farm we both worked at, then bonded with my when my pet chicken and her pet pig became best friends. Stop. Like, that is a fucking Hallmark movie. Come on now. You and a, a woman 12 years, your elder, befriend each other on a farm, and then your chicken and pig become friends? Like, that's like a literal, like, children's book. My parents have always been hands-off, and she stepped in as a pseudo-mother slash big sister sometimes to give me life advice, book doctor's appointments for me, get me through breakups, and encourage me to try bolder fashion. That sounds like really holistic holistic parenting to me, and I'm so jealous and inspired by that relationship. Also, in terms of alternative sources of advice, Madeline, who's 25 in Tacoma, said, I do sometimes go to my second parents, spouse's parents, from time to time about the best restaurants and recipes, travel tips, and random life admin things. Life admin is a good way to sort of couch those topics. But yeah, I think spouse's parents can be an excellent, like, sort of like, like a contrast from your from your own parents um i don't have that now but i've had that in the past i really enjoyed that dynamic okay and since i've brought it up i'm going to move on to have you gotten to know any of your parents friends what do you think of them i wanted to see for you all have you reached that point in your life maybe you did so before the age of 28 maybe you did so after the age of 28 how are you how are you seeing and viewing those people? And um, Lauren, again, in Houston said, I have. It's a mixed bag. My mom knows some badass women, but I don't have a real relationship slash friendship with any of them. It's more like I am a bystander in group conversations with my parents' friends or they're asking me about school, work, etc. And that's exactly the dynamic I had when I was 25. I was a bystander. I was just there to be a child and to be asked questions about sort of my like how I'm growing up basically, but like I wasn't an active participant. So that's why I'm like this isn't an advice podcast. This is a navel-gazing podcast where I just analyze my own life and if it connects to yours, great. But like I maybe would go out on a limb and say you should get to know your parents' friends if this is piquing your curiosity at all. 
Okay, this one's fascinating. Marianne, who's 24 in Tennessee, said that they made their mom break up with a friend. My mom had this friend that came around twice a year who brought in negative vibes. I dreaded her coming over because she always smelled bad. And when I read that the first time, I audibly guffawed. I'm neurodivergent and she never cleaned her house slash cats and always talked about negative things going on in her own life. I told my mom that I noticed that the friend brought her down. She felt she had to be friends because the woman's father told my mom that the woman didn't have many friends and he was thankful for my mom. Always, always a little concerning when the person has fewer, few friends. It's like, is that just because of their circumstances or is there something internally that, you know, is a little toxic about them that does not allow them to have sustained relationships? Finally, I said enough was enough and told my mom it's not worth it to keep a friend you dread seeing. And my mom agreed and cut contact with her. At the time, I was learning about setting boundaries with toxic people in my life, and that flooded into the conversation. The woman emails occasionally, but she said at one point, the less you talk to her, the lower you get on her email list. Yeah, bye for good, Felicia. Wow. That's an incredible relationship you have with your mom that she trusts your advice. Like this wasn't this is we're moving on. I'm not talking about it. This is this wasn't even a response to the advice question, but like I love the way that you bridged these together where it's like do your parents go to you for advice? You know? And sometimes my dad does about like video editing or my mom will my mom will about like, you know, fashion or something. But it's 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 rare, but I think it's so, I don't know, esteemed that your mom trusted you and believed what you were saying because some of these things we don't like our parents like some of these responses were my parents friends are not great people and I discovered some of that this December when I was home too. Summer who's 26 in northern Wisconsin responded to have you gotten to know any of your parents friends with not really my mom doesn't really have friends which that was a common response too. And my dad's friends are like worse than him in terms of politics, human respect, or just my own relatability to them. My dad is the only man I tolerate in my life, lol. And that's real. And that's real. But it's just scary. It's kind of like, it is really like eye-opening to get to know their friends because it's like, those are people that are probably influencing them. Maybe they don't spend much time with them, so they don't really. Um, But it's like scary if they're like, if those people have like, bad belief systems and you're like oh my parents are leeching off of their bad belief systems like you know you can you can really bob and weave into different friendships and you can fall into bad like parents are always worried about their children falling into like a bad scene at school with like the bad type of friends but it's like can't we can't we reverse that and also be worried that our parents as they get older are falling in with a bad scene nick who's 26 said i've spent a lot of holidays at my father's work's I've spent a lot of holidays at my father's work friends' parties, as my parents are divorced, so we'd often attend their get-togethers rather than have our own. And the only thing that stuck with me is how different, read, nicer, my father was to them than he ever was to me or my mother. That's got to fucking hurt. Um, and that's the kind of information that maybe you don't want to find out by getting to know your parents' friends, but it's like, you know, I, I'm different. I am different around my friends than I am with my parents. There's things I talk about. There's language I'd use that like my parents wouldn't understand or like get. Um, And that's kind of why like I had I actually had my parents muted from my Instagram story for a while just because just because I felt like they wouldn't understand 
the sort of like internet humor side of me. Like they wouldn't understand. And now I've unmuted them and they really don't. Like oftentimes my mom is like, the text is too small and I don't understand what you're saying. And like, I'm like, yeah, I just keep telling her. It's like, it's not for you. Like call me, talk to me, catch up with me that way. Like those Instagram stories I'm not making to update my parents or even like, you know, my close personal friends. A lot of times my close personal friends will get updates via FaceTime. I'm not expecting them to consume my content online. So, um, yeah, it is, it is, it is revealing to see how your parents treat their friends versus they treat you because I treat my friends different than I treat my parents, you know, but I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't know what my parents would make of that really. Sarah, who's 23 in Chicago, felt similarly concerned. She said, I love my mom, but I do wish she had better friends. She basically still just has friends from high school and work. And since we're from central Illinois, they're all just kind of unwoke white ladies who even she thinks are annoying, but they're all she knows. She did recently start going to a community Zumba class, so I hope she has luck there. Putting yourself out there. Hey, yo. She's currently a high school guidance counselor and adjunct professor, and I hope she's able to get her PhD and work full time at a university because I think she would thrive in a more forward thinking and passionate environment. She's just so smart and kind and generous and has such good values and opinions that I want her to have that I want her to have friends on her level. And this was so sweet and loving towards your mother. It's so incredible to think you think so highly of her and like truly want the best for her and her friendships. Robin in Vancouver said, my parents don't have friends, frowny face. And this, like, this is the response I don't want to get, but I do expect in some regard is like, yeah, maintaining relationships is hard, but I have been very redeemed by my YouTube series of interviewing strangers about friendship because every single time I aim to get people that are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and ask them about the sort of like waxing and waning of friendships in their life. And every time I try to get them to say that their friendships have declined later in life, they resist me. They're like, no, like there's not one time in my life that I had more friends than another. Like I've kind of had consistent friendships. So I've been like, I've been encouraged to be hopeful about friendships in my later stages of life if I get there. But then I hear things like this and I'm like, yeah, a lot of a lot of parents just don't have friends. And it's like, I'm like, what happened? Like, it's just sad. I'm like, how can you live like that? And I'll end on this one for this question from Mia, who's 20 in in Sydney, Australia. And she said, I've gotten to know a few of my mom's friends well. Last year, I went to visit her best friend who lives in Boston and who I've adored spending time with when she comes to visit us in Australia every year. We walked around the art gallery for nine hours and went on lots of long walks. And I asked her about her life and my mom when she was younger and what she wants to do in the next 10 years. It was one of the best weeks of my life. Um, euphoric, aspirational. Let's let's make a movie about that. Okay, like we're making movies about so many romantic relationships. Why aren't we making movies about a daughter who visits her mom's best friend and they have an enjoyable week together? Because you do glean a lot of information from your parents' friends about your parents. Like, it's interesting to, like, if your parents are different around their friends than they are around you, it's interesting to learn from your parents' friends how they view your parent. And I've learned some stuff about my mom in her college years that I never knew from, like, her best friend. Quickly, we'll cover the most anticipated question of this survey, which was, do you know anyone who has had a curse put on them? Please share the circumstances and its effects. I just wanted to see, like, is is getting a curse put on you very common in our consciousness? Because this past week of learning about these three sets of curses, two of those were fictional. Well, actually, one of them was based on a true story, but um, 
I don't believe it. Uh, I don't believe in the curse. Um, but I'm like, is this just a thing that like everyone knows about? And I've just like yet to kind of glean. Um, but a lot of people have said, like most people said, I do not. But I'm really excited to hear other people's answers to this one. And uh, a lot of these were circumstances where people had bad things happen to them. But I was interested in hearing about like a specific instance where there was an I curse you moment. Like not a moment where you're like, damn, am I cursed because bad stuff starts, starts happening? I'm saying like, was there a moment that you were cursed? And there's a few sort of spooky things that happen to people. Um, Alicia or Alicia in their childhood bedroom in Seattle, who's 23, said, freshman year of college, my sweet mates bought a statue of Aphrodite that was about 18 inches tall. And very soon after, some weird stuff started happening romantically for some of us. At what point I came home to them sacrificing money and chocolate to try to reverse the curse. And eventually someone ended up giving it to the guy she was seeing at the time to see if that would help. Surprisingly, everything went well the next three weeks. And then the person whose initial idea it was to buy the statue realized it was gone and was pissed. So we had to get, so we had to get the statue back and things went downhill for the next few years until I returned back to the museum we got it from and apologized to Aphrodite and things seem to be fine now. Love that. Okay, this one's very witchy. N, who is writing in from her messy room and a messier mind, said, I put a curse on my friend's ex regarding a shared community we were in. He's a dickhead, opposes reproductive rights, etc., and is a complete dick to people. At the time, he was trying to keep us from pursuing a project that did, al- did not align with his politics. He was in a position of power in our shared community in which he also, in which we also tried to execute the project. And sure enough, once we put the curse on him, he got super busy with work and couldn't cockblock our little radical leftist endeavor anymore. Wording the curse was tricky for me. It was important to me to not manifest any harm to him or undeserved success to us, but to only stop him from being in our way and unfairly using his position to put an end to our project. I felt uneasy about taking care to not harm him when he was going out of his way to harm us. Hmm. Hmm. Real and in- in- intriguing. Okay, and finally, Hannah, who's 25 in Alabama, said, I actually put a curse on my ex-boyfriend in high school via a curse jar that I buried in our that are that I buried in our backyard, and my parents have since moved from that house. Anyway, I basically did a petty fuck his life up type curse, and he ended up losing all of his friends, breaking up with his new breaking up with his new girlfriend at the time, and having to move schools. But I like to think that was due to his own personal actions and not my curse jar. Anyway, that experience spooked me so bad, I stopped doing any type of witchcraft ever again. And it is hard to discern if that person's actions are creating the bad things in their life or if it's like truly just, to me, this the, the family friends that I heard about the curse from, the things that were happening to them were so like, they didn't do anything to bring those on. Like a bridge collapsing, someone demolishing the house and your house collapses, like gestational diabetes, that's just like, you know, it's just, I, I don't know. To me, I was like, those seem pretty curse-like. And before we do taking and leaving, the last question I asked was, when and where do you feel the most naked or exposed in your life? In other words, in other words, are there circumstances, situations, or experiences that make you feel really raw? I wanted to hear about people putting themselves out there and what that like means to them. Because if I asked people, what does it mean to you to put yourself out there? I feel like this was a more roundabout way to get the answer to that, but I thought it would get more true responses. And holy hell, like this is probably one of my favorite surveys I've ever done because the answers on this are so good. And if you want to read more of them, you can follow Revelatorium on Instagram. 
Um, and also look in the description of this podcast in the show notes for our Rev zine that we've been working on. It's a really beautifully designed zine that features a lot more of these sort of confessions. So go check that out if you want. But I'm just going to like speed run through these and not give much like response to each of them because I think they speak for themselves. Anonymous, who's 25 in Berkeley, said, I feel most naked and exposed when receiving compliments and being affirmed. It's a scary. It's a scary. (laughs) It's scary. However, a good thing I'm trying to adjust to. It's less about external factors and more about my internal processing. Mole, who's 27 in the UK, said, After some therapy sessions, I feel completely exposed and it takes me the whole day to be able to function normally again. Midge, who's 25 in Denver, said, I feel the most naked in large crowds when I'm alone. For example, going to a concert by myself or being at a social gathering alone. I wish I was more capable of feeling self-assured in these situations, but I usually end up feeling vulnerable and exposed. I usually bring a buddy as armor, which makes these kinds of situations more enjoyable. Abigail, who's 22 in Little Majors, Exuma, Bahamas, said, Definitely in my last relationship. Something about two gals having seven emotionally charged convos a week. Those discussions were some of the most vulnerable moments in my life and why we were so close during our time together. I've never felt that exposed in my life or in any other relationships. But in general, whenever I have to explain my needs to another person, emotional or otherwise, I always feel like I've peeled open my chest for them to take a look at. Madeline Tacoma said, Situations where people are directly asking me questions that test my intelligence and or experience of the world. I grew up in a home where my parents did not care for learning or experience bunching or experiencing much of anything, and did not learn about the world through them. School is my only opportunity to learn, and since delight in learning wasn't modeled for me, I've had to learn this as an adult. I didn't take much interest in what I learned in school either. I'm slowly catching up by reading classic novels, movies, and learning through research and travel. Still, it feels like I'm 18 years behind everyone. From Sarah in Massachusetts, we have, My mom and I get along fine. We aren't especially close, and I feel awkward around her if we have too much time alone. But we aren't at odds. She had a serious fall. <clears throat> she had a serious fall a couple months ago, recovering slowly but surely, and I went home a few weekends in a row to be with her. The last weekend, she said she wanted to talk to me about something that had been on her mind for a few years that she hadn't known how to bring up in case she fell again and it didn't turn out well. That conversation was easily the most emotionally raw I felt in years. I didn't expect it. We were already feeling a little unfamiliar around each other. The stakes were high and we've never had a conversation like that before. So both of us were bumbling through it. That is so intriguing. Like I want to know so badly what it was. Anonymous, who's 24 in Santa Cruz, said, when I'm in big groups, five plus, and I am the only one talking, I start to get really conscious of how other people are perceiving me. I feel very exposed in times like these and I hate it. Sometimes I'll let the moment continue and just feel awkward. Other times I'll call it out and say something like, ag, all the attention is on me and I'm scared to make light of it and almost control the feelings. Healthy or unhealthy, I have no idea. Ha 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 ha. I think just calling it out takes away the power from that. So I think you should continue to do that. Nikki in San Francisco said, crying in front of my boss out of anger. Absolutely. Anonymous said, I loved this question because I've realized they spend so much effort on trying not to feel exposed. I steer away from topics that I want to avoid. Don't bring up internal conflicts that I haven't yet solved, etc. And that's real. It's like it literally is hard to put yourself out there. And this contrast is valid. Like a lot of people don't put themselves out there because it is raw and painful and it doesn't feel like good at first. 
Nick, who's 26, said, Whenever I've engaged in a hobby around others who don't naturally also engage in that hobby, i.e. building Legos with a partner who doesn't, or watching a film slash TV show with someone that maybe otherwise wouldn't have watched, it's sort of a vulnerable vulnerability in saying, this is what I've invested my most precious resource of time and attention to. I hope you don't pass the judgment of that being a poor choice on my part. Yeah. It sucks when it's something you care about so much and something you've created and like other people might not have a taste in that medium so they just can't like they can't enjoy it like you want them to hannah who's writing in from the ratty tattered old chair that my brothers lost the ottoman to (laughs) said when my friends meet each other i'm a recovering people pleaser and it used to freak me out when my friends would see each other because what if they didn't get along i felt responsible for their feelings but now i don't need to be However, the residuals of that still lingers. I'm trying to learn that it's in these moments that something good can grow. Yeah, it's naked letting important people in your life meet each other because it's like they're meeting parts of you and doing that. That's my theory. And now let's take a few takings and leavings. What are we leaving behind in December? Anonymous in Berkeley said, self-loathing and this stubborn lingering crush on my last housemate. I think a great way to expel the last you know, dredges of a crush is to recognize what in that person you admired and then just like exhibit that yourself. Like whatever it is about them you liked, try to find a way that you can just like incorporate that into your life without them. Nikki is leaving job searching. I finally got an offer with a company and role doing something good for the world and it pays well, lol. Got the call an hour ago. Incredible. I'm jealous. I want that. I claim that. Excellent. And I think a lot of people that have been struggling with job hunting that have been writing into this podcast um, probably want to manifest that for themselves, too. Carmen, who's 27, writing in from a new home that feels more like home than anywhere else I've ever lived. Love that. Said that she's leaving a friendship that I never imagined outgrowing. And I guess along with that, a version of myself that I also never imagined outgrowing. I had a little moment of that myself this past month where I was like, I never thought I'd outgrow my friendship with this person, but just like, I don't feel like we're maturing in the same way. Hannah, who's 25 in Alabama said, probably will need to leave my book club because I performed a major social faux pas at the book club Christmas party. And I'm like, what the hell was the faux pas? I need to know. All right. Now, what are we taking? Emma in Lenexa, Kansas, who's 20 said, she is taking that I like things. For a long time, I felt like it was stupid to like anything, but I love soup, yellow fish, cows, and watercoloring. And that is an incredible lineup of things to like. Helen, who's 20 in Germany, said she's taking ignoring people who assume a guy friend and I are in a relationship or at least into each other just because we talk to each other and are comfortable hugging and leaning against each other. We know know there's nothing going on between us, and that's enough for me. Yeah, I think after this episode probably most would know that I agree with that. Rhiannon, who's 20 in Tucson, Arizona, said they're leaving my love for my near and dear friend who abruptly stopped speaking to me in June. I haven't been able to let go of them, even though everyone has been telling me to. I'm moving forward, but not letting them go. I love you, Renee. I hope we speak again soon. Oh, Some are said they're taking, honestly, doing better COVID precautions. I'm probably the most cautious person most of my friends and family know, but getting sick and being out of order for a month just from a cold is way more annoying than wearing a mask more often to avoid a mass-disabling virus and other illness. And yeah, I think we could all stand to be better about our COVID precautions. Um, 
especially like here's the unforgivable thing to me if you are actively sick even if you're not contagious anymore if you have a cough if you're you know if you know you're sick wear a mask it's like way more important for you to wear a mask when you're sick if you're going to go grocery shopping if you're going to a class or something like please people will understand they won't judge you they'll be thankful if you're sick I don't want to be sitting next to anybody on the plane that's coughing up a a storm. It's like, have we learned nothing? Like, you could prevent so many people from probably catching that illness just by wearing a mask. Like, why would you not do that? Like, I think to me, that's the bare minimum. And then, of course, like, even if you aren't symptomatic or sick, like, you never know. So it's just helpful. Okay, I think I'm going to save the rest of those and move on to our first fact check of the Gregorian year from Miss Lena Daniel. If you remember, last month's episode was farming your biggest revelations from last year. And so this will be in response if there was anything I said that needed to be fact-checked. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the last fact-check of 2023. In the beginning, Catherine mentions uh, a word subsume that she's not really sure how to use. So a quick definition shows that it means to include or absorb something into something else. Um, To use it in a sentence, most of these phenomena can be subsumed under two broad categories. And then later in the episode, uh, Catherine mentions a Pulp Fiction quote um, where Mia mentions uncomfortable silences. And that's when you know you found somebody really special. You can just shut the fuck up for a minute and comfortably share silence. Thanks so much for tuning in. Love to hear Lena cuss a little bit. Um What's your favorite cuss word? Probably fuck. Um, okay, excellent. Now we all know how to use subsume and we know that that quote from Pulp Fiction, which comes up so often in my life. And now we all know that there will be 11 more Revelatorium episodes this year, many more volumes of the zine to read, and more Revelatorium surveys to enter. Thank you so much for listening. You'll hear me next time and Cather out.